0: Welcome to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe the homeland of the Red River Metis, and the traditional territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. The show is also broadcast on participating stations across Canada and the United States and podcast at the site Globalresearch.ca. My name is Michael Welch. As the climate crisis continues to dominate mainstream news and discussion, the question of developing hydroelectric energy as a replacement for the fossil fuel energy sector is the compelling option, particularly for politicians in Manitoba and other provinces blessed with river systems that permit damming. However, those connected with Indigenous communities in the north have suffered tremendous hardship and destitution springing from this force that is our emergence from fossil fuel energy. Waniskatan is the name of an alliance of hydro-impacted communities which emerged from three meetings and two tours in northern Manitoba. Its goal is to explore all impacts, positive and negative, from hydroelectric development in terms of its effects on the environment and on Indigenous people, and to explore how this alliance could lead to a healing as a tool for social and environmental change. Waniskatan, which is the Cree word for wake-up or rise-up, encompasses membership of 24 Cree, Anishinaabe, and Métis nations, 22 researchers, 14 justice and environmental NGOs and 9 universities in both Canada and the United States. In November of 2019, the group held a conference on the University of Winnipeg campus. At this meeting, guests visiting from across Canada as well as the U.S., Latin America and abroad would unite for a cross-regional alliance focused on implications of hydropower for environments and indigenous people in Canada and around the world. The Global Research News Hour was in attendance and talked to several different names and faces. This episode is dedicated to that conference and all the hard work that went into it. To start our review, we first discussed representatives of the different communities. Two of the visitors were also in Winiskatan's Executive Committee and on the Research Steering Committee.
1: My name's Carline Keeper I'm from Cree Nation, which is a hydro-affected community. Um, hydro ruined the land in a lot of ways. All of the shorelines are eroding from, from all of the water pressure. All of our graves are sinking in the water now. Like, my auntie's grave, it was up high, and it go, went down like five feet into the land. And the medicine—you you don't see no medicine on the land no more. And it's not really healthy. When once you drink the water, you'll get a sore stomach, or you get—you get really sick. A lot of people have stomach ulcers and kidney stones from the unhealthy water. We spend about. $700 a year on water bottles alone. No, nobody should have to spend that much on basic necessities. Uh,
2: my name is uh, Leslie Dysart. I'm from the South Indian Lake, also known as the Opie, and Cree Nation. i um, a hunter, fisher, trapper, but also work for the Community Association of South Indian Lake, who has signed agreements with Manitoba Hydro in the province of Manitoba. Well, our community was flooded way back in uh, the early 70s, 1975 specifically, and even before that, during the flooding and, and quite till now, we've been um, trying to address with Manitoba Hydro and Manitoba and even Canada of all the negative impacts that have been happening in our community current to today. The impacts uh, around the flooding, but also... More spe- specifically, the erosion and the collapse of our fishery fish populations, damages to you know the whole environment due to the operation of the augmented flow, which is outside the parameters of Manitoba Hydro's interim license of
3: 1973. My name is Ramona Nequay. I'm professor. Um and program chair at University College of the North in Thompson. I'm from a community called Nistuyasi Cree Nation, and so that's Nelson House, Manitoba, which is about an hour's drive from Thompson, which is about seven and a half hours' drive from here in Winnipeg. And so we're a hydro-impacted community. We're um, affected by two rounds of industry activity, the first being the Churchill River Diversion, and sort of related to that is the Wasquadam partnership that was entered into um, in the mid-2000s. Social impacts, um, I think, are coming, becoming more noticeable and, you know, you've got cultural, political, economic um, impacts in addition to both the environmental um, and social impacts. So this is something that we're starting to to see, the research um, is showing that you know, the impacts are broad um, and deep. People
2: whose economies, whose traditional lifestyles have been damaged and impacted so much or even destroyed in some cases, um, turn to doing negative things with drugs and alcohol and the violence that comes with that. But it's more our young people who have no hope of a future without a stable environment and economy, that we're really seeing the damage. I mean, I've described it as our youth, our children, are literally destroying themselves because they, they see no hope of a future in northern you know, it's Manitoba. It's been
3: less than 50 years. You've got communities that have gone through and are trying to find their way through colonial policy like Indian residential schools and then having to deal with compounded issues Related to industry presence in our territory, which is actually in in the trajectory of colonialism in this country is not that long ago. And so, you know, in communities, we're able to invoke language that's been used, you know, to describe some of the impacts and outcomes of residential school um, with what's taking place and what has been taking place and what continues to take place with regard to industry presence in our territory.
2: There there is uh, funding out there through the Social Sciences Research Council where um, we can start addressing some of these uh, impacts and doing research on them and informing people. So all all the credit goes to them of formalizing the Wanuskatan Hydro Alliance, uh, applying for the funding. And creating a a home base at the University of Manitoba where people have the opportunity to to research the impacts of Manitoba hydro development and learn from it and and share it. You know, now there'll be records of what's actually going on. Steph
3: McLaughlin um, from the University of Manitoba was able to put a partnership grant together and... You know, it allowed us to work our way in the very small steps that it took to become one NISCAD then. And so, um, yeah, we're midway through this partnership grant, and it's really great that we were able to kind of bring similar voices together people who had um, shared ideas, shared goals, and to start. A very important conversation of what next? Yeah, I've what are we doing? This now.
2: close to three decades, but I learned stuff yesterday and today, and I thought, wow, I, I can use that, you know, uh, or I can also share our stories. I mean, just this example: there was a, a group uh, from uh, South America, Panama, Colombia, who are ma- facing huge atrocities uh, conducted by builders of dams or current dam operations, and I told them, you know what? There's we have a more closer connection. Uh, Manitoba Hydro, who is our crown corporation who designs, builds and owns the dams in Manitoba has a subsidiary of their company called Manitoba Hydro International in these countries in Panama in Colombia who is advising if not helping construct the dams so they weren't aware of that so we made them aware so the opportunities to share our stories are becoming greater. And we're hoping through that it'll effect kind of some kind of social change, social justice. You know, the general public needs to know and force Manitoba government, Manitoba Hydro to change. Those are the kind of opportunities we're aware of, but taking positive action today to make them happen.
1: This conference shows how much Hydro affected everyone all over the world and every community that I never heard about. it keeps continuing destroy lives of the people. What you hear
2: from the Manitoba government and Manitoba Hydro about clean, green energy is not the case. The energy creation and the impacts on it are negative. It's almost pure destruction of our environment, our economies, our whole communities, our, our very culture. And this is a Manitobans' backyards. Become aware, ask hard questions, and look deeper than the information you're giving because the truth is is out there as they say and Manitoba Hydro and Manitoba don't want people to know the truth and they definitely don't want to deal with the truth so we're asking the general public and the younger generations you, you will become the leaders that will have to deal with this so learn now and hopefully there will be positive change in the future or you will be the ones affecting the change. Keep
1: showing them how, what their real side is. Don't fall into their lies because it's not renewable energy. It's nothing like that. You're just affecting the people that lived in surrounding areas when you get from these dams.
0: That was some of the concerns registered by members of hydro-impacted communities in Manitoba one of the keynotes I contacted was Senator Mary Jane McCollum. She brings not only extensive understanding of these communities in Manitoba, but also of plagues in Indigenous life intersecting with the pummeling taking place in communities plagued by dams. Here's my conversation with her. Could you speak to a, a couple of examples of those social determinants and, and how uh, you know, these... Uh, extractivist and, and hydro products are, are interfering and, and impacting people's communities, the, the, the things that maybe stood out for you in particular?
4: Okay, um, with the social determinants of health, uh, I think the closest link are the, um, when I look at the hydro-impacted communities, it's the housing, it's the, the food insecurity, it's the violence against women. It's the gender inequality that come when industry moves into the community and the work camps come in, and they take uh, priority over the people that live on the land that you know that they're displacing, that they eventually displace, and uh, so that's so when I look at. Um, uh, the extraction, you look at how it affects the land, it pollutes the land, it uh, destroys it, it um, creates uh, distances, the women from their role as water keepers and uh, as creators, with, uh, which is within themselves as well. And that's how they connect so closely to Mother Earth. So if, we're dis- if the land is being destroyed and the water is being destroyed through resource extraction, then that contributes to so much destruction for First Nation lives and First Nations' ability to, to look at what solutions that they need to look for.
0: I, I know you've spoken extensively about the residential school experience, and that too is uh, you know it separates people, you know, this young people from their traditions. And I, I know that you've spoken about how you've survived based on what you you know had taken before going to the to the um, the residential school. C- could you comment on where that experience? Connects with this um, this process of uh, the, this uh, uh, extractive extract extractivist uh, and 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 hydro intensive uh, industries. Uh, I mean, is it something that's sort of like added on, or are they kind of part of the same uh, continuum?
4: Are you talking about residential school? Yeah, uh, it is part of a continuum. It's part of colonization. And when you have made... I was made to believe that my body didn't belong to me, that I didn't belong on the land where I was raised, that I didn't belong to the community I was raised, I didn't belong to the family, because I was taken out forcefully and put into a foreign institution at the age of four. So when you look at how colonization had made me vulnerable and made me marginalized. I was just ripe for, you know, like to be exploited even further. And for a long time, I didn't see what was happening because I thought that was normal, that it was normal for other people to come into our communities and do whatever they wanted. And I also didn't have a voice at that time. And I also didn't have any solution. I didn't feel that I had the right to come up and fight what was happening to us. So when you've been led, it's called learned helplessness. When you've been raised like that, that learned helplessness follows you throughout. And I still will get it sometimes, even in my everyday world at Senate now. And I have to be very mindful. No, I'm not learned helpless. I can speak, I'm intelligent, and I have a lot of work to do. So I have to be focused, and I have to really make myself aware that I cannot recolonize my own people in my Senate work because that would be just another form of colonialism. And when I went into Senate, my friend said to me, it's going to be interesting to see how you interact in the oldest colonizing institution in Canada. And I hadn't thought of it like that. But now when I'm there, I have to be really careful that my ego doesn't overpower my spirit. And that was the other part that was taken away from us, was our spirituality. And I let that go for many years, and then 20 years ago I started to really look at who I was. And when I got my spiritual being back, I reclaimed it, and then I was able to move forward. And make, you know, to make certain that the intent I had of what I was going to do has a good purpose. That I'm working with my people, that they're giving me direction, and that um, it's done for for good and out of kindness. You know, we to do, do it out of kindness.
0: Is there anything else you could say about how you stay grounded, how you keep uh, from allowing ego to overwhelm spirit?
4: Um, I go back to the teachings that I've have brought me to the level that I'm at. And when I went into Senate, I I spoke to a group of people before I was um, sworn in, and I said to them, the Mary Jane that walks into Senate is not the individual Mary Jane. She is a collection of all the people that have shaped my life, from my parents, from the land, from elders, from whether they're indigenous, non-indigenous, and that's who walked in there. So when you've been shaped by uh, spirit, other spiritual beings, you have the teaching to to pray and say uh, before I do a speech, I'll say, Creator, please help that this comes from the you know the right space with positive energy positive spirit and that um, I you know as long as I'm aware that to pray then that's how my spirit comes comes forward.
0: Different communities that uh, you might say hey I'd like to share that with uh, you know whether it's Barren Lands or, or anyone else anything that perhaps even at this conference that you've come across that uh, really spoke to you.
4: Um What really spoke to me, I think, was summarized by that young man from Norway House when he spoke yesterday and said he just wanted to speak about how he felt um, being in the conference, that he had hope. And that's what it's about. It's the hope. When I see young people like that, and they're they're the future leaders... That gives me such great hope. And one person is enough. One young person, that's all you need. So he really gave me great hope. Uh, what really uh, um, struck me with this conference was the passion and the the care that the people have in uh, moving forward with this, um, the destruction that has been created by others, that they are so resilient and that they are so focused and um, they are such good examples for me.
0: As mentioned, the communities embracing damming are not just Canadian. Dams are similarly popping up abroad, and many of these developments do see some Canadian influence. Colombia is an example. Our guest was in the meeting and via a translator capable of relaying the difficulties plaguing communities in her area.
5: So, Isabel Cristina Zuleta, eh, del Movimiento Rios Vivos de Colombia, el departamento de Antioquia, eh, municipio de Ituango. Y vengo afectada por el proyecto hidroeléctrico Ituango. My name is Isabel Cristina Zuleta. I'm from the
6: movement Ríos Vivos, which means rivers alive, from Colombia and the municipality is Ituango and the department afectada
5: por el proyecto hidroeléctrico Ituango.
6: Affected by the hydroelectric power project of Hiduang.:
5: Bueno, las hidroeléctricas Hidro, Hidro, están acabando comunidades en mi territorio. So, uh,
6: hydroelectric plants are destroying our communities because what they're doing is that they're destroying the territory, and we are communities that live and need the territory to, to exist. So this is a dry tropical forest that we live in, and so we need to survive. We need the fish, the forest. We need the forest to survive, and we need the bariqueo which is a handmade handcraft type of mining that it's uh, traditional from the area.
5: Destruye además, toda la biodiversidad, eh, todo el ecosistema, y eh, los que se benefician. So it destroys the biodiversity, it destroys
6: the ecosystem, because it mainly drives on it, the hydroelectric plant. So it is the hydros that are benefiting, and the businessmen behind the hydros, and they count with the support of financial institutions such as the pension bank in Canada. So they benefit from the public debt, that is handed out on to the people, which are the ones paying for a really high rate for the electricity they need. So there is profit from the construction itself, from the public debt that is created out of the energy that has been sold, and by also through the reparations of the the dams themselves, when they broke down, they're, they're they break down. they completely insured. So there's also a profit in that. But probably the most benefited from this type of business are the military world. What I mean by military world is all that involves the, uh, having guns, enough guns to control a territory. That's big business. So uh, the hydroelectric plant is a gun in itself, it's a way of weaponizing the territory. They dry up the river, and they also want to pull out the oil from the lower side of the streams, which is another way to profit. So they control the waters, and they take out the gold from the lower part of the dam. Yeah. So they also contaminate by um, damming the water what they create. They create methane gas, which is uh, 20 times more damaging to the biosphere than any other... Um, Greenhouse emission gas.
5: Mm. So um, there's a big risk
6: for not rising up, which would be to lose your dignity, because dying is easy. So my territory is full of mines, mines for personal people transiting. So and there's always been conflicts between armed forces and different militants. So it's just part of what it is in the territory. So just existing is already dangerous, and so that we believe that it is worth it to risk whatever is it that you have
5: to save life. When we started resisting, they told us that we were all going to die, and when they told us that we weren't
6: that afraid.
5: We felt more scared or afraid when
6: they started trying to uh, make me a missing person uh, as a leader of the group. We do have a great pain for all the lost and missing people. We are afraid that our families may not be able to do the ritual, the traditional mourning of someone that has passed on. Another risk is that we may become jailed. We may end up in jail, and many of
5: us have been jailed in the past. Eh, nos estigmatizan todo el tiempo, nos señalan de ser brujas, de, de we ser hechicerías, eh, porque hemos dicho lo grave sort of que es esta situación y you know, lo
6: que va a ocurrir.
5: También nos dicen terroristas ambientales, porque según to them, ellos oponerse al desarrollo a es una forma de terrorismo they do not employ people that are part of the resistance and they do not allow us to work in that way. So there are many risks to what we do, but we believe that it's worth it and
0: that it's what we have to do. Um, one more p- point I, I'd like to raise. the uh, There's a lot of uh, talk these days about the, uh, the clean energy technology, renewable energy. We're going to move away from fossil fuels and get uh, windmills, uh, electric cars, and, uh, all these technologies that are, uh, the renewable energy economy that they talk about. Um, do you have any cautions about that, uh, that kind of approach? Because it's with the whole climate change activism, it's, it's, there's a lot of this talk about we'll simply move from fossil fuels to some other form. What, what kinds of, uh, uh you maybe you could you know speak about any concerns you have about uh, that kind of approach.
5: Yo creo que es un but she thinks that they're actually um, a big lie behind that
6: this discourse because we as communities that are surviving dams and the presence of those so-called clean energy technologies are actually suffering and will be at more risk. They will want to build more of them. There's pollution in the water, there's affectations to the water through dams, but also petroleum or oil itself contaminates the waters uh, even deep waters are agua, contaminated by those type of practices so it's all part pero of the
5: same also like like in Mexico en there's the cases en where uh, these wind ejemplo, farms these wind turbines actually devastate the ecosystems, the ecosystems there as well uh, so no when it comes to solar panels it's not really sustainable because in order for you to have those batteries for the panels
6: substituting them or replacing them actually it's very expensive so, and also you have to mine the lithium for them to operate. So that comes from mining, mining Entonces, territories.
5: No so, the solution is not a technology solution, it's an ethical solution, de a
6: dignity solution. Eh, y no and we as las communities are not supposed a to give the solution to a demand no that we miramos. did not create.
5: Sin embargo, sabemos cuál
6: es el problema. Well, we know what the el real problem is. La the real problem is the conglomeration and the, so many people in the same space, living in the energía same space, demand an enormous amount of servicios. energy. And that's what we el consider to be the real es
5: problem. El el the, problem es the problem is capitalism. The problem is that they want to
6: impoverish people, communities, in order for capitalism policiers. to exist,
5: Hay que to reduce the,
6: of the of de- demand of energy
5: sepan que we are um,
6: afraid of earthquakes the earthquakes that happen in our area um, because we were displaced we are more afraid since the dam is present in our territories because we are at risk constantly that if there's an earthquake you know we have there's a possibility that many of us will die so um, we believe that Canadians would not
0: agree with that being normal. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour broadcast out of Winnipeg on CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. We are also podcast at globalresearch.ca. This week, we address the participants of the Waniskatan Conference held at the University of Winnipeg in Winnipeg, Manitoba in November of 2019. My name is Michael Welch. Another person who shared her thoughts with me was Eliza from Brazil. She, too, had some information to share about the difficulties plaguing communities in the path of hydro development. A translator assisted.
7: Uh, I'm Eliza. I'm from the movement of people affected by dams in Brazil. I live in a city called Altamira in Pará State in the Amazon region of Brazil. Mm-hmm. First of all, I believe that, that
8: actually the uh, socioeconomic impact and environmental impact, they are all que interlinked. Que uh, because, because when you build a hydroelectric no dams, the first uh, thing you do is uh, actually destroy the environment. environment. And by destroying yeah, the environment, yeah. you're destroying the uh, socioeconomic of, uh, abilities and resources which uh, people então, depend,
7: depend on. For example, terra, in our do case, do you know, the
8: affected people, they are people who have been relying on the rivers or in the land, Uh, To make a livelihood, and they don't have that facilities to do now. There are also people who, for example, were used to be uh, fisher fisher folks, and they know no no more fish now to catch, and they have lost their livelihood.
3: And historically
8: in Brazil, actually, the poor people people who uh, live very close to the rivers, in most cases, they don't have any sort of uh, land titles to the place where they have been living for um centuries
7: perspective. So when actually there's a project uh, to, uh, uh, you know, uh, de de construct de direct dams um
8: and they say we are going to uh, compensate uh, all those people, the reality is you don't have land titles and you don't you don't receive any sort of compensation. And the vast majority of the people affected have been people who don't have uh, land titles. So they are the first displaced and they receive no Brasil, absolutely nothing.
7: Os não nenhuma lei, In
8: Brazil, they don't have any direitos. law to protect any basic rights they are affected, uh, people então, affected by the dam construction. So we always say, you know, to regain some fundamental rights, we have to organize, we have to fight for a, então, esse, a fundamental é human da rights.
7: Do MAB, do and that is what assim.
8: actually our organization, Mabi, uh, makes, provides opportunity for the... Uh, uh, people affected by this dam's construction to organize and defend Porque and reassert their rights. The uh, hydroelectric que interest says, you know, uh, all Brazilians are going to be benefit from uh, ou the ou benefits from cheap uh, electricity, and na this na is, is going to benefit almost everybody in Brazil. But in practice, actually, do Brazilians, do Brazilians are paying one of the highest uh, tarif, electricity tariffs in and, Brazil. Uh, and in the whole world even considering that uh, hydroelectric power is very cheap to uh, to produce in Brazil so who is benefiting from that cheap uh, cheap uh, energy actually uh, mining industries uh huge corporations who uh, dedicate themselves to all sorts of uh, extractivist activities. So actually construction uh, industries who actually uh, build those dams, they need uh, cheap uh, electricity uh, rates to operate. So they are the ones who benefit the most.
7: We have so many actually corporations now, industries selling selling
8: electricity in Brazil and they are the ones who actually benefit the most of the uh, profit-making enterprise. And that is what actually the contemporary Brazilian reality shows most of the electric dams are controlled by financial interest uh, and uh, in most cases foreign and they are the ones who are benefiting the most from uh, the exploitation of those uh, resources
7: É, de fato, é um perigo porque. In fact, it's very
8: dangerous for us to be active in defending our <inaudible> rights because uh, we are facing powerful groups. They are uh, powerful economic blo- uh, blocs. Sometimes, actually uh, with uh, international <inaudible> connections themselves. And the most important, they, they they count with the support of the state.
7: Primeiro, não fazer. For the
8: reason, we don't actually individualize our <inaudible> the struggle. A
7: tática das empresas é sempre negociar individualmente com as famílias e tentar copiar as lideranças.
8: Então, a estratégia dos atingidos é, uh, tem sido se organizar. A...
7: O so é e se consideramos um movimento popular, ou seja, ele é, é formado pelo conjunto dos atingidos to, uh, que se propõem a se mobilizar. Struggle, uh, in, então, more, uh, contra essa divisão uh, que as empresas fazem, uh, a estratégia, a proposta do movimento é se
8: unir which means we must start from the grassroots, organize themselves at the local levels, strengthen our movement, because if we are not united, then we are likely to be um, drastically affected by these powerful groups. For that reason, we never try to be alone. We try to establish as many solidarity networks as possible so they can help us uh, to confront uh, those powers, uh, powerful groups.
7: Yeah, Bolsonaro has a contradictory political discourse <inaudible> on the one side he says, yes, I want to keep
8: the, the Brazilian Amazon as a part of the sovereign Brazil, but at the same time he's opening up business uh, with uh, North American corporations who are going to exploit the resources there.
7: Problem is a yes. The other problem we are
8: confronting is criminalization of social movements, what Bolsonaro is, is, is blaming for the instability are those social movements, so he's trying to repress as much as he can. And his message is, you know, we are going to repress as much as we can those social movements, and nobody's is going to be persecuted for doing that, because... We are doing the right thing, Dilma
7: Ferreira,
8: uh, Dilma Ferreira
7: que de Tukului, that belonged na to... Amazonia he was
8: opposing e the hydroelectric uh, Turukoi e and the Brazilian Amazon, and she was assassinated when she was actually e struggling for the rights and uh, doing a peaceful
7: protest. Pra, pra, pra pra e mm-hmm. and
8: we are very aware that actually that... Uh, a political discourse or hatred uh, against uh, social movements is uh, contributing a lot for uh, uh, popular sectors in Brazilian society being persecuted and being harassed, and without coming all sorts sort of uh, problems affecting our members.
0: Could you comment on
8: any uh,
0: similar important similarities that that have really struck you, and if there are any important differences? That that uh, you would like to take note of between what you're experiencing in in Brazil and and what you're hearing in in Canada.
7: Perhaps
8: actually the similarities we are facing all over, not only uh, in Brazil, all over the world, is the uh, severe socioeconomic consequences. We confront from that uh, hydroelectric dam construction or dam construction in general.
7: Dos laços destruction of
8: families, de solid yeah, community yeah. networks, uh, solidarities, and uh, the environmental violence de that comes with it.
7: And here in, in
8: Brazil, de all de over de the world, we see that actually the be. people who suffer the most are uh, the most marginalized ah, sectors no, in, in, in their societies. Also, I, I noticed that here actually similarities that women. Um, feel the suffering uh, worse than uh, that other groups.
7: The differences, perhaps,
8: because actually in each country we go we, yeah. we have a different way how organizing our One of the diversities here we no, have found it no also no is the fact so that here in Canada, for example, the governments or uh, the, uh, uh, the federal estatais government estatais plays estatais a key role de in deciding de where the dams will be constructing de whatever. De uh, in Brazil, the case is a little bit different, because actually the private sector takes the initiative. Unlike in Canada, where the state uh, uh, plays a critical mm-hmm. role. And in Brazil, this is uh, more complex because there's the connection connection within with inter- international e capital which well, makes the situation a little bit difficult.
7: Yes, aqui another aqui interesting
8: Canada, uh, fact I Canada, have come do out is actually sul, uh, Canada has Portugal. a great number of uh, industries uh, that exploit in natural that resources. And e in Latin America, uh, most of those uh, uh, industries are Canadian, they are the ones actually um, are in the business of uh, hydroelectric and uh, minerals and all sorts of activities.
7: O, and once elas you actually build uh, hydroelectric uh,
8: dams and one visions, you know, uh, it's not only to generate energy, but also uh, mineral enterprises comes along because uh, that requires a lot of, the, uh, lot of energy, so it's, it's the gate to opening up uh, more extractive forms of exploitation in our societies.
7: <laughs> por, por exemplo, All those sectors, do...
8: mining, for example, in Latin America, uh, basically por there's exemplo, a strong Canadian presence.
7: For Xingu, example, in the which region which
8: I, I will I live um, in the area of Xingu and the hydroelectric um, of Monte
7: electric dam, for um example, um uh, drain uh, out the lakes
8: de there rio. Uh, of
7: about 100 km By
8: coincidence, in that San area which actually que has been drained all the work, there's, there's a huge am- Canadian-owned uh, mining corporation, mm-hmm. they are exploiting gold.
7: And they are, are taking as de much, de much gold as
8: possible because in the past that was the underwater and because the all the water has yeah, been drained that is easy to exploit now. of the local community now what is happening is of construction of particular project you know
7: And the process of construction
8: of the project you know the you and the communities um, around.
7: Com uh, I'm has been brasileira. so much
8: complaint that actually there is a judicial process. Mas não temos nenhuma confiança no sistema judicial brasileiro
7: de que vão realmente tirar but, a you know, desse know, We project. don't trust
8: very much the judicial system in Brazil, so uh, in my view, Eu nobody is going to be uh, found responsible for that
7: que a sociedade aqui da, do Canadá também saiba desses projetos de destruição. actually, it is very good that those issues are brought up. We need to understand
8: actually né? what the responsibility of those Canadian companies denunciar are. So people who great impact here, he, uh, um in the world can cause a project. Canadá investa share of the company, que embrinde os company accountable for the damage they are causing um, in many parts of the world.
0: My final interview for the evening was with Deepa Joshi. Deepa Josie is a feminist political ecologist whose work analyzes shifts in environmental policies and how these restructure contextually complex intersections of gender, poverty, class, ethnicity, and identity. She has worked primarily in South Asia as well as in Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, and Latin America, focusing on the incongruence of water supply, sanitation, irrigation, and water energy policies with complex ground realities. She has been leading these activities in several bilateral projects in South and Southeast Asia and Africa, and she currently coordinates two longitudinal projects on the themes of environmental justice and climate change in the Eastern Himalayas and in the eastern Gangetic plains, I asked her to expand on some of the challenges she has faced and on the limitations she is confronted on the scientific stage.
9: So I think the region for me is very unique because I I think our sort of lack of a political identity, lack of political self determination, the presentation of these very unsustainable, extractive industries like tea and hydropower being presented as opportunities for growth and seeing the acceptance of many, many local people and of their belief that this is indeed growth is for me, also signifies what is so fundamentally flawed, and and how how much of a challenge there is for people to step back and to begin to question these issues from a political frame of mind. I don't know if I answered your question.
0: No, I, I mean, think that was a very interesting uh, perspective, and one one thing that certainly came through for me is is the importance of. Uh, you know, when when those of us who are looking to um, you know bring about a, a, a just and, and sustainable set of affairs, I mean, for example, I'm, I'm sure you've heard about the the, the climate movement and the Greta Thunberg and uh, the the youth climate activists and and environmentalists generally who who may mean well, but if they haven't escaped that colonial mindset, which is dominated by people of privilege, white people, men that they can end up doing uh, more harm than good and and even uh, not not only for the cause the efforts that they're seeking to champion but also uh, committing graves uh, acts of injustice against the the people in the areas that they're they're hoping to uh, address and and work with Uh, I was wondering if you could maybe uh, speak to that issue uh, directly, maybe uh, particularly with reference to the the explosion of uh, of hydro development in the the Tista River Basin.
9: No, indeed, you're very right. And I think think we need to consider a couple of things (laughs) that, first of all, as I talked about in my discussions today, the fact that you know, we live in a time of broader injustice universally, but I think within this broader context of inequality and injustice by class, by by ethnicity, by religion, by race, different in different contexts, we also have areas globally where there have been nested injustices, historic injustices. And I think when you talk about something like climate change and climate interventions and you know if you talk about these and if you perceive perceive perceive, and if you sort of pursue these without attention to historical injustices I think it leads to all sorts of very complicated problems on the ground Mm. so just to draw attention to the fact that there's constantly talk about sustainable tea and ethical tea. Now, the question that one needs to ask, as I said, is that can a plantation be ethical? (laughs) And what must reverse to make these plantations ethical? How do you give the rights of ownership and gain and profit equally to those who work these plantations. But even is that enough? Is that economic justice translate to the environmental injustice that plantations like the tea industry have done in the region? And similar to hydropower projects, um, I think what, what our research um, has revealed is that, and really the question that, that it asks is can there be a sort of a right sort of hydropower initiative can you have a sustainable hydropower development can you have inclusive hydropower development can extractive industries like the hydropower and and you know hydropower let's say because it's considered climate mitigating can it really you know be inclusive and can it really be sustainable? And I think it sort of then begs attention to the fact that how are these policies and how is the science of climate change being shaped? Who are those who are there at the table deciding what is climate mitigating? And how much of that sort of understanding, expert uh, understanding and expert or coalitions really informed by a very diverse, very unequal reality, ground reality. And I think feminist scientists like Donna Haraway have really drawn attention to these issues, saying that what passes off as science, what passes off as knowledge, is actually. The partial knowledge of a privileged few who happen to be, unfortunately, mostly white males for a very long time. I think historically and prominently, the water sector has been, you know, has been led and water governance and water management defined by principles of economics and principles of management by very privileged white men. And it's really, really interesting how this figures out because not only, you know, not only is there that who's at the table at a very broad level in terms of climate policy, climate mitigation, climate interventions, climate smart agriculture, you know, you name it. But I think what I also experienced was at a very basic level in my own project where you know, I was at that time in the, at Wageningen University in the Netherlands, and usually most large longitudinal research projects were led by tall white men. <laughs> and here I was, a short woman of color, managing a climate policy research, and I was constantly reminded of my identity and of my inadequateness in being able to question these issues of science. So I think we so I I hope I sort of explain to you how how these from a feminist perspective what we say is inequalities are never pure. They intersect with you know inequalities by gender, for example. Or, by any other factor are never pure; they intersect with multiple other inequalities, and neither are they ever absent, so they function at every level. so I think we we also really need to draw attention to the inequalities that happen at the table of climate policy decision making
0: yeah um yeah i, I alert. Listeners might be familiar with the idea of, of, of these uh, sort of colonial and, and intersecting, um, you know, injustices, imbalances within academism, corporations, government, but maybe are not quite so inclined to see that in in academia. I mean, we you have like the the famous line by Greta Thunberg, you know, unite behind the science, which is, uh, you know, it's it's not as uh, Holistic in their their view, not respectful of the the female perspective, women's perspective, indigenous wisdom as well. And of course, you had the toughest time getting your paper on uh, hydro as not a, a particularly green uh, source of energy. Is uh, <laughs> it was, it was you know you ran into a, a great deal of frustration and uh, getting that published. Although eventually you did with no, uh, I don't know to what extent, given your experience, that came to you as a surprise, but. Uh, um could could i get your uh, perspective then on um how how this i mean we've got to you know t- to try to uh, you know, bring that to you know total viewpoint but i mean there, there are some immense challenges you know especially in the uh, the current venue where it seems increasingly you've got the this thrust i mean the the, the movements that are getting the most attention that are the most popular Tend to be the ones that are dominated by these privileged sectors, so it ends up becoming kind of reinforced. Could, could, can you point to examples of uh, that 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 broader vision that that incorporates uh, you know the, the the people the people women and uh, indigenous perspectives, people on the front lines, and, and their ability to to break through that carapace of of of, of Colonial patriarchal uh, knowledge and control
9: so I think there's a lot that has been written about this by by political scientists, and I simply lean on 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 the trajectories that have been opened up, for example um there is a person that whose work i greatly admire called eric Swingidau, who works at the university of manchester who's written several papers about the fact that we need to really question this issue of that there is a climate crisis and that it is urgent and that it is apolic apol <laughs> I, I can't apolitic? Quite, yes can't, i never can say the word and it is urgent, and it affects everyone equally. <laughs> and if we don't act on it right away, it's going to be devastating. A lot of, a lot of, there is a lot of truth in that, but there is also a lot that's not quite true in that. I think the climate crisis does not affect everybody equally. In fact, I think in you know, wealth, and wealth at a personal level as well as wealth at a state level the community level, decides who's more and less vulnerable to the climate crisis. And I think there's also another issue that's really important, that poor people cannot be held accountable for resolving the climate crisis. In addition to everything else, you cannot have poor people being made responsible for resolving the climate crisis. What that means, if you turn the argument around, is that you know, hydropower projects which impact on the lives and livelihoods of marginalized, often indigenous communities, you know, cannot be presented so simply as a climate mitigating solution. And I and I think that these are some of the issues, I think the thorny issues that we tend to overlook when we discuss the urgency of a climate crisis and the need for climate-mitigating solutions. And I think the point to also make here is the fact that the global north and, you know, needs to, as well as the global south, there is much more a need for rethinking about how we live sustainably rather than sort of, you know, business as usual but through climate-mitigating interventions, which will reduce the supposed carbon footprint. Mm. But maybe not so when you add up uh, the fact that consumption and capitalism continue at the same speed as they have. So there is, uh, I think there is a lot of element of truth in what Greta Thunberg is saying, and a great need for urgency. But at the same time, I think if these discussions happen without an understanding of the inequalities that exist at scale across <coughs> geographic and ecological landscapes then i think you know there is very high risk that climate mitigating options will will sort of exacerbate the existing inequalities
0: mm-hmm. It, it does seem as if uh one aspect of uh you know, the differences uh you know that or or a characterization of these um, this colonial patriarchal mindset is that tendency to compartmentalize the climate crisis over here or human rights over here um and, and i don't know to what extent we're we're overcoming that but um is is there is there any uh I don't know, uh, certain uh, things that we need to keep in mind when we, we see someone uh, proposing an, an, an approach or uh, uh, a solution. Is there a way, I mean, certain boxes we have to check off to make sure that we're not returning to, uh, you know, a kind of a, a colonial or patriarchal viewpoint just in, a, in, a green, in green face, so, so to speak.
9: No, I'm, I'm indeed, and I'm glad you use the word "solution," because I think we need to sort of figure the word "solution. <laughs> we need to sort of analyze it very, very closely. Given that our world is such a complex vortex of many challenges, I think it, that by itself begs attention to the need to not find simple solutions, or not to think that we can arrive at simple solutions. And there is a friend of mine, my namesake, uh, from Nepal, who is also a water researcher, Deepak Gewali, who talks about the fact that the climate problems are wicked problems, and wicked problems often do not sit comfortably with simple solutions. And what wicked problems really require is uncomfortable knowledge that spe- that crosses across disciplinary boundaries that looks at political social legal economic biophysical dimensions of the problems and i think by and also sort of and i think also i think it begs attention to the fact that we are constantly reminded that climate is not weather climate is long term sort of changes in in environmental situations but on the other hand the the problems and realities of those who are most marginalized are very much to do with everyday problems so this sort of this very nature of balance between Longer-term solutions and shorter-term realities is something that the whole climate policy discourse often fails to look at and understand.
0: That was our interview with Deepa Joshi, political economist and feminist in varying regions of the world. And this has been the Global Research News Hour with our focus on the Waniskatan conference at the University of Winnipeg in November 2019. If you are interested in this conference or on anything related to the group, you can find it at the website hydroimpacted.ca. Global Research News Hour airs on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States, as well as at the site globalresearch.ca. You can send feedback at globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Music on tonight's show was Shifting Sands from the Purple Planet music. It's available at purple-planet.com. Thanks once again for joining us. Tune in again next week. My name is Michael Welch.